young people from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part, too. <laughs> They're doing their part. Are you? Join the mobile infantry and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey all you citizens and civilians, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And we're here with our final edition, at least on the main feed, of our Verhoeven Summer. That's right. We are continuing over on Patreon, though, with Flesh and Blood, which has won our Patreon poll. Hopefully you've been keeping up with us because we started this adventure with Basic Instinct and followed up with Showgirls. And then, uh, of course, last week was Robocop. That's right. So we are progressing through Verhoeven's oeuvre. And they just keep on getting better and better and better. That's true. Although, we started strong. Basic Instinct's really good. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. I think it's safe to say at this point that Verhoeven makes good movies. That's, yeah. I would definitely say so. Although, this is, I think, his, like, 15th movie. And so, (laughs) we haven't really seen anything from before Basic Instinct, right? So he had made a slew of movies uh, Mm -hmm. in the Netherlands. And, uh, of course, we're going to watch Flesh and Blood, uh, which we haven't yet, which is his earliest, his first American film. All right. I'm looking forward to that. But before we do that movie, we have to talk about Starship Troopers, which is a 1997 American science fiction action horror satire film (laughs) directed, as we said, by Paul Verhoeven and written by Edward Neumeyer, based on Robert A. Heinlein's 1959 novel of the same name. The story follows a young soldier named Johnny Rico and his exploits in the Mobile Infantry, a futuristic military unit. Rico's military career progresses against the backdrop of an intense war between mankind and an insectoid species known as arachnids. Neumeier had previously worked with Verhoeven as writer on Robocop back in 1987, like we covered last week, and he had been a fan of the novel since he was a child. Verhoeven, on the other hand, had never read the novel, but attempted to before filming the movie. He didn't make it very far, only reading a few chapters. He claimed the novel made him bored and depressed. Mm. But Starship Troopers received mostly negative reviews from critics upon release. However, in retrospect, reviews have become much more positive, with many critics highlighting the film's political satire over the years. The film's iconic score was composed by Basil Polidorus. All right, listeners. Would you like to know more? Well, here it is. This is Starship Troopers. In every age, there is a cause worth fighting for. But in the future, the greatest threat to our survival will not be man at all. of tomorrow must travel across the stars to defend our world. We are a generation commanded by fate to defend humankind. Everyone fights, no one quits. We are going in with first wave! 
You smash the entire area. You kill anything that has more than two legs. You get me? We get you, sir! But they will face an enemy more devastating than any ever imagined. takes you to the front lines of the next frontier. Kill them all! Starship Troopers. In the 23rd century, humankind has become a space-faring, planet-colonizing people under the Federation, a militaristic, neo-fascist body of government which rewards its people with greater benefits as citizens, granted through military service as opposed to civilians, which do not. Whilst having surpassed the known solar system, the humans encounter the arachnids, an alien species hostile to the human presence in the galaxy. Football gymnast Johnny Rico, played by Casper Van Dien, his girlfriend Carmen Ibanez, played by Denise Richards, and his best friend Carl Jenkins, played by Neil Patrick Harris, graduate from high school, Carl and Carmen both possessing strong intellectual skills, which puts Carmen's interest in pursuing a career as a spaceship pilot and psychic Carl into military intelligence. Having only spent his time perfecting flips in the football arena, Rico does not possess any such skills and enrolls into the Mobile Infantry, the land branch of the Federation's military, but he only joined to be close to Carmen. Rico is disappointed when Isabel Dizzy Flores, played by Dina Meyer, a classmate who has strong romantic feelings for him and a very definite staring problem, enlists and transfers into the same squad as him. During basic training, Rico excels as a soldier and is named Squad Leader. Carmen, hungry for the space D, breaks up with Rico, knowing that the distance between the two of them, as well as their aspirations, will make the relationship untenable. During a subsequent live fire exercise, Rico unintentionally gets one of his squad members killed, while another one quits out of guilt. Rico is relieved of command, and he's given a punishment, being paraded around shirtless, tied up and whipped by the luckiest member of the infantry. Scared from his SNM flogging, Rico resigns from his service and intends to go home. But before he can, his hometown of Buenos Aires, now home to a ridiculous amount of white folks, is destroyed by an arachnid meteor, killing millions, including his parents. Rico is super pissed and rescinds his resignation, re-enlisting as a private. The Federation unanimously votes to go to war with the arachnids in response and launches a full invasion of Clendathu, the arachnid home planet. However, the Federation grossly underestimates the arachnids and the invasion is reduced to a rout with immense casualties. Rico himself is wounded in action, but is mistakenly placed in the KIA list, which Carmen sees and is left heartbroken. Rico eventually recovers and is assigned with Dizzy and the survivors of his squad to the Roughnecks, a special unit under the command of Lieutenant Radchek, played by Michael Ironside, his former high school civics teacher. Rico quickly rises to the ranks of sergeant, also rekindling Dizzy's feelings for him, culminating in the two having bug planet wigwam sex, where Dizzy confesses her love for Rico. The Roughnecks are deployed on Planet P, in response to a distress call from a Federation outpost. 
On arrival, the Roughnecks realize that the Arachnids have baited them into a trap, and then swarm their position. Dizzy calls for a retrieval, which arrives just as the Arachnids breach the perimeter. By chance, the retrieval ship happens to be piloted by Carmen. During the retreat, Radchek is mortally wounded. Rico delivers a mercy killing and then assumes command. Dizzy is also wounded and later dies in Rico's arms. During a reunion with Carl and Carmen, Rico discovers his unit was deliberately sent to P to assess the possibility of a brain bug on the planet that had been directing the arachnids and learning how to defeat the humans. The fleet ultimately intends on returning to P, but midway through the drop, Carmen's ship is destroyed by arachnid plasma, but managed to escape with her co-pilot Xander, looking fresh off the set of Melrose Place, but crash lands into a bug tunnel network where they encounter the brain bug. The brain bug uses its long, thick, lubed-up proboscis to fuck Xander's skull and suck his brain. But before it can do the same to Carmen, she Lorena bobbins it with a hidden knife just as Rico and the Roughnecks arrive. With an armed nuclear grenade in hand, Rico rescues Carmen and they are pursued by the Arachnids. Watkins, a Roughneck veteran who is wounded in the skirmish, sacrifices himself with a nuke as bait, whilst the rest get away. Emerging on the surface, Rico discovers that Private Zim, his former drill instructor, played by Clancy Brown, has captured the brain bug. Carl arrives and mindfucks the bug, revealing that it's afraid, causing celebration amongst the troops. A propaganda clip then plays, highlighting Lieutenant Rico and Captain Ibanez as model servicemen, encouraging its viewers to enlist. Do you want to know more? No. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Starship Troopers was released on November 7th, 1997 on almost 3,000 screens. It brought in over $22 million opening weekend, securing the number one spot at the box office. Other films in the top 10 that weekend include Bean, which had jumped from number 15 from the previous week to number two. There's a story behind that. Really? I want to know. Yeah. So the fact is the studio had been like kind of doing some subtle marketing uh, I don't know where they had done this, maybe on like early chat rooms and things like that, or maybe even in publications, that uh, all the people that were underage could sneak in by buying a ticket to Bean. <gasps> yeah. Wow. That's very interesting. Right? And so you and good see for Bean. it went from 15 to 2, and Starship Troopers was kind of neutral. Yeah. And didn't quite make quite as much money because all of those kids went to see Bean. But that's not good to start the troopers. It's <laughs> fucking mass. amazing. Yeah. That could never happen today with choosing your seat. Yeah. Uh, also in the top 10 was I Know What You Did Last Summer, The Devil's Advocate, and Fairy Tale, A True Story. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a good time for 1997. Sure. It would remain in the top 10 at the box office for the next five weeks. Ultimately, the film would go on to gross $121 million against a reported budget of 100 to $105 million. And I don't know if that's actually a loss. I don't think so, but I mean, you really have to factor in some of Bean's money now, I guess. Yeah, well, you really do, but they don't get any of that, right? Yeah. But obviously, this this movie is made a gobbledygillion after on home releases and things like that. That's true. Yeah. But when we, whenever we do look at those budgets, sometimes we like take half plus one when it's this large budget or sometimes double it mm-hmm. to come up with a marketing budget. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. And if that's the case, then it might have bombed a little bit, but maybe it's even. I don't know. I mean, it, and I remember it being very popular when it was released in the theater. Oh, sure. So. I also remember it being super controversial. 
I don't really remember that. I remember articles calling it like uh, Verhoeven, like a neo-Nazi and and things like that. Like the Washington Post, I think it was. Hmm. I'm not sure I paid a whole bunch of attention to it when it was in the theater. So No, you were saying, I know what you did last summer. Over and over again. (laughs) What are you waiting for, huh? (laughs) Yeah. So Starship Troopers holds a 66% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score of 70%. The site's consensus reads, a fun movie. If you can accept the excessive gore and wooden acting. I can't. Oh, fuck you. On Metacritic, it has a rating of 51 out of 100 based on 20 reviews, indicating mixed or average reviews. Audiences polled by CinemaScore gave the film an average grade of C plus on an A plus to F scale. I'm sure today it would be different. Oh, that, yeah. That no one understood this movie though. when it came out, at least not American audiences, and we'll definitely be getting into that. <laughs> on release, Starship Troopers received negative reviews from American critics. Janet Maslin, our favorite of the New York Times, panned the crazed, lurid spectacle. Jeff Weiss of the Deseret News called it a non-stop splatterfest so devoid of taste and logic that it makes even the most brainless summer blockbuster look intelligent. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times also called it shallow and oriented towards teenage male science fiction fans, but nonetheless said Verhoeven managed some sly satire by maintaining a visual style reminiscent of the 1950s when the book was first published. Quote, the sets and costumes look like a cross between Buck Rogers and the Archie comic books. Wow, he did not know what he was talking about. No, I <laughs> do not agree with any No one got it. That. Jesus. His counterpart, Gene Siskel, gave the film a marginal recommendation, praising the satire that exposed the kick of killing and the technical computer artistry of the bug effects, but saying the film got repetitive and could have been cut by 20 minutes. Well, mm. the movie didn't, but he did. <laughs> <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> I'm going to hell. More positive retrospectives of the film finally began to appear in the 2010s, although some in the early 2000s as well. The retrospectives generally de-emphasized the film's action elements and instead analyzed as an indictment of fascism and nationalism, or which you're going to hear a lot of, jingoism. But I think we normally hear the word nationalism more often. In the 2013 retrospective, Colin Marsh of The Atlantic called the film, quote, a satire, a ruthlessly funny and keenly self-aware send-up of right-wing militarism that critiques the military industrial complex, the jingoism of American foreign policy, and a culture that privileges reactionary violence over sensitivity and reason. End quote. Mm. That is a really great review, actually. Kind of spot on. Yeah. In a 2017 retrospective roundup of the best films of 1997, the AV Club called the film too damn well made for its own good and said that it confused audiences and critics. Ned Carter Miles of the Little White Lies movie magazine and website argued that the film's lack of internal self-awareness eliminates critical distance between the viewer and the in-universe propaganda presented on the screen, creating an alienating effect. According to Miles, the film exposes the suspect events and philosophy of Highland's fictional universe on their own terms, without guiding our interpretation. Just like any other echo chamber, the film offers a singular message. And I think that's fair. I think that's a fair critique because so many people, at least in America, were confused by it. Uh, Europe got it, specifically the UK, very much got it in their reviews and certainly the way they marketed the movie. I think the problem with Verhoeven's satire is that he tries to make an engrossing story within the satire that some people can take as an endorsement of the system the story takes place in Mm -hmm. rather than admonishment. So a lot of people, especially younger people, just don't get the movie on their first watch, even with all the obvious propaganda inserted throughout the movie. I mean, I certainly did not. Me either. Yeah. 
Uh, the film does have some accolades and legacy, though. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. At the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards, it was nominated for Best Male Newcomer for Casper Van Dien and Best Female Newcomer for Denise Richards. What? No love for Dina Meyer? I know. She's so good in this movie. Mm-hmm. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Science Fiction Film, Best Director, and Best Writing. And it won Best Costumes and Best Special Effects at the Saturn Awards. But at the Stinker Awards, it was nominated for Worst Picture. But it did not win. So That's right. The film has spawned four sequels, including two live-action films, Starship Troopers 2, Hero of the Federation from 2004, which was actually directed by Phil Tippett. Really? Uh I haven't seen this. And Starship Troopers 3, Marauder from 2008 as well as two animated films, Starship Troopers Invasion from 2012 and Starship Troopers Traitor of Mars from 2017, none of which I have seen. I haven't even seen Phil Tippett's. I have not seen any of these movies either. Yeah. There was also a 1999 spinoff CGI animated half-hour television series entitled Roughnecks Starship Troopers Chronicles, which ran for eight story arcs and ended on an unresolved cliffhanger. In December 2011, film producer Neil Moritz announced plans to remake the film. In November 2016, Columbia and Moritz announced the writing team of Mark Swift and Damian Shannon had been signed to pen the screenplay. Verhoeven has expressed skepticism of the proposed remake, citing reports that it draws heavily from the original fascistic and militaristic 1959 novel, which is weird for him to say that. I mean... He doesn't want them to remake his movies. That's true. Like Robocop. Uh, Robocop, he said, I think I should die before he makes I should be dead before this movie is remade. For real. (laughs) It's going to happen, Paul. You're just going to have to let people do it. So let's get into it. Let's talk about the differences from the novel a little bit and the the satire of uh, fascism. Have you read this book? No, I haven't. Have you? I have not. I've read some Heinlein. Did you read like Stranger in a Strange Land or like? No, or like the Puppet Master. Okay. Right. But I have never read Starship Troopers. Yeah. So. Same here. So the scriptwriter Ed Newmeyer had been a fan of the novel since childhood. And Paul Verhoeven on the other hand had never read the book and attempted to read it, just like we said. Uh, but it made him bored and depressed. So he only read a few chapters. And quote, I stopped after two chapters because it was so boring. It really is quite a bad book. I asked Ed Newmeyer to tell me the story because I, I just couldn't read the thing. It's so right wing. And uh, this is ironic because, of course, Heinlein is not a fascist. Nope. Right. And in fact, there are some ideas in there that he like at the time and, and his political views changed throughout his life. And so a lot of Starship Troopers is satire, but it's funny because Verhoeven also didn't get the satire of the book and people didn't get the satire of his movie, <laughs> which I find super ironic. And uh, it, it's funny because like some of the ideas, like he was in the military and and, and Highland saw the, the laziness like during World War II of like the civilians compared to like the military. And so he thought about meritocracy, which many people, intellectuals keep bringing up in some regard, right? So I, I think the voting of the military was something that he believed in, but almost everything else, the obsession with weapons and violence and needing an enemy and all that other stuff, that was all satire. Right. Right. And so I think you have to kind of take the book as a whole before you can really <laughs> judge it because he was like, well, I'm making a satire of the book, but no, you're not because the book was satire too. And Verhoeven never truly understood that. I don't think. So he's trying to satirize a satire that later yeah. no one would get it's a little more complex in the book because not all of it is you yeah. know so it's tough to say just based on that anecdote though i get this like mental image of ed newmeyer like telling him a story like tucking in paul verhoven and be like <laughs> i'm gonna tell you a story called starship troopers 
<laughs> so there are actually a lot of differences between the the film and uh, the 1959 novel. And so while the novel has been uh, accused of promoting militarism, fascism, military rule, the film satirizes the concepts by featuring bombastic displays of nationalism, as well as news reports that are intrinsically xenophobic and propagandistic. Yes. Which is super obvious. That's right. I mean, like, even as a kid, I would notice something like that. Yeah. And I did. I watched it. This movie came out when I was 14, you know, and I, and I kind of understood that the, but I thought it was kind of the tone of the movie. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So in a 2014 interview on the Adam Carolla show, the actor, Michael Ironside, who read the novel as a youth said that he asked Verhoeven who grew up in the Nazi occupied Netherlands, why are you doing a right wing fascist movie? And Verhoeven replied, if I tell the world that a right-wing fascist way of doing things doesn't work, no one will listen to me. So I'm going to make a perfect fascist world. Everyone is beautiful. Everything is shiny. Everything has big guns and fancy ships. But the only thing it's good for is killing fucking bugs. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to be on set with him, actually. Yeah. <laughs> So the film includes uh, visual allusions to propaganda films such as Why We Fight or Triumph of the Will and uh, wartime newsreels. And the symbols and certain clothing styles of the Federation are modeled on those of the Nazis, which is super obvious. Yeah, spot Um, on kind of. Yeah. And Verhoeven stated in 1997 that the first scene of the film, an advertisement for the mobile infantry, was adapted shot for shot from a scene in Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will from 1935, specifically an outdoor rally for the Reich Labor Service. Oh, my God. Yeah. So all of this is super intentional. And other allusions to Nazism include the the Wehrmacht-inspired uniforms and insignia of the field grade officers, military intelligence, working uniforms reminiscent of Mussolini's black shirts, Albert Speer's style of architecture and its propagandistic dialogue, like violence is the supreme authority. <laughs> so in his DVD commentary, Verhoeven said that the film's message is that, quote, war makes fascists of us all, end quote. He evoked Nazi Germany's fashion, iconography, and propaganda because he saw it as a natural evolution of the United States after World War II, and especially after the Korean War. He said, I've heard this film nicknamed All Quiet on the Final Frontier, (laughs) (laughs) which is actually not far from the truth. Right. So a lot of people guess like this is like an alternate reality where the Nazis won. Right. And, And Verhoeven has actually gone on record saying, no, this is the future reality of America, you know, if, if America's nationalism movements and and things like that kind of pick up as a natural progression. And it seemed actually kind of prophetic, right. With the war on terror after nine 11 and, and all of this stuff and all of these scenes in the desert kind of are reminiscent of our, you know, fights in Afghanistan and Iraq, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's when this movie started to get a little bit more critique and I can totally see that because when you're you're looking at this movie, right, and you're, we're watching things unfold in Buenos Aires of all places, the beginning of this movie, right, mm-hmm. and everyone seems incredibly American, right? Oh yeah. Um, nothing in that like country or that that city look anything remotely like they do now or even nope. in the past, Absolutely. right? It's like America has has like taken over the entire globe. Right. Yeah. I can see what he's doing with all these things. They're in Buenos fucking Iris. I mean, <laughs> and even like when when they're having these conferences in Geneva and stuff like that, everybody who's talking, everyone who's there seems very, very American. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's right in front of your face. 
Yeah. And I mean, you're seeing some of the things like in the propaganda and in the media and certainly things neighbors are saying, like the only good Muslim is a dead Muslim. Things oh like that God. back then yeah. after 9-11. And, you know, there was like this this uh, rallying cry, like things like caused these nationalist movements, you know, and who can say what America would be like today as a beginning snowball effect, you know, if 9-11 had never happened. It'd be interesting. And I get what he's talking about after like the Korean War too, because I, I know that that whole period after World War II was super, super like nationalist for America and continues to be sure. today. Yeah. So, I mean, we're holding our hands over the heart and everything. <laughs> mean, my God, <laughs> the Pledge of Allegiance uh, before school every day, like all this stuff. Right. Yeah. So Verhoeven says the satirical use of irony and hyperbole is playing with fascism or fascist imagery to point out certain aspects of American society. Of course, the movie is about. Quote, let's all go to war and let's all die. What's more American than that? Yeah. I mean, my take is that fascism needs enemies to justify itself. And the more different categorically, like different races or religions, or in this case, different species, the better to justify the war through racial or societal superiority or both. Individuals are expendable to service society. And, you know, I'm, I'm starting to think about all of the original critique that this movie got, as well as from some of Robocop. Robocop was a little bit easier to, digest, to yeah. digest, I think, versus this. People really get lost in the story. And I'm wondering, just like in Robocop, does Verhoeven really need like a genre savvy character in his satires? Does he need someone, you know, in the military camp, you know, listening to Jake Busey play the stupid vi- uh, neon violin and saying, <laughs> are we the baddies? <laughs> You know, <laughs> I mean, it would certainly help the fucking audience. I literally you know? just tattooed a skull on my arm. Am I the baddie? <laughs> <laughs> Let's all do it together. And we spit this fucking liquor on it while you're getting it. I mean, yeah, they're super ready to go down to that planet and start killing things. Right. They they know their enemy like full on. They've been fed it probably their entire lives. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> you look back at the class that he's taking. Right. That that civics course. Mm. Right. Led by his future you know, leader. Yep. And I mean, like he is literally filling his head with, with propaganda and nationalism and ideas that he doesn't share at home with his family. Right. So it's, it's clear. And I, I feel like you're right. I mean, like we experience this stuff today too. Like I feel like certain individuals will clearly single people out. Right. Like we're both gay people. You know what I mean? And we're considered the enemy throughout lots of places in our country or beyond. Sure. So I don't know. I, I feel like and we're hearing people on Fox news now that they're putting on, say, kill them all, kill yeah. all the gays, kill their parents apparently now. Oh my God. Yeah. I just heard about that. Which is stupid. It's so stupid. But yeah, I think that in this movie in particular, I don't think that he needs a, a genre savvy character in Robocop. Like you said, because it's easier to digest. I feel like on first viewing of this movie or why people pick it up, maybe not now, but in the past, it was all about, it was all about spectacle, science yeah. fiction, spectacle and action, which it has a lot of, but maybe having that one person like calling to question the actions of things. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting that you made me, you made me think of something else because I, we almost get that perspective a little bit more often with the good police or the good people in the street or different perspectives. We get the criminal perspective. We get the, like the white collar criminal perspective. We get the police perspective. We get a lot of different things right in this movie there's almost no other perspective than everyone that's wrapped up in this bullshit i know except for his parents that's right and they do not have a whole lot to say except for like kicking him out and then dying yep 
So we're, we're just left with, with nobody to question the actions of a gigantic military and a gigantic federation. Yeah, exactly. So like I said, I was 14 years old when this came out in theaters. And I understood it was making fun of propaganda, but I didn't really get the satire. What was your first experience? I mean, obviously, I'm a little older than you. And so I, I, I didn't see this in the theater. I watched it when it came out on video because I was working in a video store. Right. Mm -hmm. And I had known people who saw the theater and really, really liked it. They didn't mention anything about satire. What were you waiting for? Huh? I know. Right. (laughs) I just could not stop myself in 1997, apparently. Uh, But when I watched it for the first time, very much like you, I could see what they were doing. Right. It was clear propaganda films throughout this movie. But other than that, like I, I really just I didn't think he was making satire. I thought he was just talking about the the similarities between like what was going on in this movie and like Nazi Nazism, yeah. right? World War Two. Mm-hmm. Maybe like an allegory per se, right? It wasn't until much later on that I found the humor in this movie and like all all the satire and what he was doing ironically. Watching this in a more like analyzing way, like I did for this for this episode. Mm-hmm. And I've always watched it for kind of entertainment, but also knowing the tongue-in-cheek satire. But just going through it and then looking for those things, specifically for notes, is a very different experience. And uh, the first thing that we're presented with in this movie is propaganda to enlist in the mobile infantry. That's how the movie starts. And in the first 45 seconds, we see a child soldier. That's right, people laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And the very next scene is a classroom scene with quote unquote teenagers, which, you know, they're all 30 somethings who put the hot seat on Nazi. <laughs> we have to talk about that at, at some point in this conversation. Like everyone who's supposed to be a child or like a, an older child, a teenager in this movie is old. They look really old. Technically but... the three, like the mains were all in their late twenties, but okay. I mean, Patrick Muldoon though. Yeah. He was 29. No, he just, he looks like, older. He does not like 29. That's crazy. Him, Casper Van Dien and Dana Meyer were all 29. In fact, uh, Dana Meyer and Casper Van Dien are within four days of birth from each other. That's crazy to me. Patrick Muldoon is like a 40 year old. I know. He and he's he like so old. And he's at some like high school. Dance. I remember thinking that the first time I ever watched this movie, I was like, he's like 50. <laughs> I was like, he looks like a fucking pederast. He's like hitting on Denise Richards. I was like, what are you doing? For real. So, uh, like I said, the very next scene is in that classroom. And even though there's a lot of visual storytelling going on between Rico and Carmen, you can hear the instructor in the background. And I've never really listened to every single thing that he said because so much is going on visually. Right. And so if you listen to what Radchek is saying, uh, it tells you exactly what this society is. He mentions the failure of democracy happened and how the social scientists brought the world to the brink of chaos from his point of view and how veterans took control and only citizens, not civilians are allowed to vote. And you can only be a citizen with at least two years of service in the military. And then uh, they're talking about voting and he says something given has no value. And that violence is the Supreme authority from which all other authority is derived and voting isn't given. It is taken. Right. And so it is an exercise in political violence. And so it's such a drastic change. They talk about Hiroshima. They talk about all this stuff. This is all in the first five minutes. And it's so maddening because you're like, we're all so stuck in the story already. It's so immersive. And we're not listening to what we're hearing. I I feel like on this particular watch, I noticed that too. Or maybe like, because you and I watched this movie not too long ago. 
right about a year or so ago together yeah and it had been the first time that i had seen it since i saw it on home video right how amazing for you i mean because right. it was because I, I to watch it on because I, I had the 4k yes re-release or whatever and i had never really thought about like satire in this movie or like the implications of like fascism or nationalism before with this we had talked about it you know kind of and i just was like oh i didn't really enjoy that movie the first time i watched it and then we watched it and all these things start to like pop into my head right yeah. but this time yeah i was listening to his lecture and i was like that's crazy and just like with robocop i'm like how far off are we from this like right fucking now i mean every time i turn around i feel like democracy's failing in the country i live in well this is super poignant even today right yeah and so and so is robocop i mean it just yes. keeps on giving us gifts the gifts keep, keep on coming it's like verhoven christmas instead of verhoven summer yeah and so back at that high school right i mean he's kind of beating us over the head a little bit right mm-hmm. the only classes we see at the school seem to be preparing them for war <laughs> civics is about the justification of violence biology with rue fucking mcclanahan somehow <laughs> <laughs> golden girl herself is all about understanding the bugs and how to kill them and their football seems excessively violent and it warlike is. And flippy. <laughs> flip Lots six, three hole. <laughs> Do a flip six, three hole. You can win. <laughs> I don't understand that game. I'm just like, I'm trying to get, the, I don't understand football anyway, but like. I think it's called jump ball, technically. Ju- oh, geez. Right. So it's a cross between football and gymnastics. Well, obviously, but yeah, jump ball. Yeah. It's just flipping over everybody. We also find out with all the signs on the high school and everything um, that we're in Buenos Aires. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like a sea of white people. Now there are uh, minorities. Yes, there are around, but they're very minority. Yes, I'm yeah. a, a minority of minorities. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I really picked up on that this time, and I'm I'm not quite sure I did on the other watch that we did about a year or so ago. But I was like looking at the signs, like Buenos Aires. I was just like, my God, they're all white. Although they all have some sort of like Hispanic type name for the most part, they do, which uh-huh. is kind of concerning. Yes. And then later, like I feel like the the most uh, mixed up it gets is when he gets into the military, because there's like a couple of black people and there's a couple of like uh, Latinx people, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera, on you know his just a squad alone. So it gets a little bit better, you know. But I think that we're really going for a point here, you know. Even oh. in the book, the main character Johnny Rico is actually Hispanic. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, well, that's good. I mean, for what I got from this is that like. America had so colonized the the, the globe yeah. that I mean, obviously, like names and things like that will stick around. You know, there, there there could be people like, you know, marrying other races and things like that. And so you're you're left with names like Rico, Ibanez, well, it's, Flores. It's a huge clue, right? And because like, Highland wrote it that way, because that's where a lot of the Nazis went. Argentina, oh, that's right. That's right? true. Argentina, Brazil, mm-hmm. right? They're all boys and girls from Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> I did not even think about that until just now. You're right. No, yeah, that was done super intentionally, right? And so, um, I mean, the only way they could be more intentional is if, like, hey, this is Ghana, Africa, or something, you know? And it's like a sea of white people. We also find out that citizenship makes it easier to get a license to have children. That's right. And it's scary how much I agree with some of that. But <laughs> I was just about to say, I was like, you know what? I think that's okay, though. So, I mean, if anything we take out of this movie, please get a license to have children. Well, it's scary. The, some of the things that it kind of makes you gut check some of the things that are that seem, at least on the surface, attractive to you. Some form of meritocracy is attractive to me. 
quite honestly. If I have to work so hard as a gay man, like jump through millions of fucking hoops just mm-hmm. to adopt a child or have one biologically, why is it so easy and legal for, you know, two 16-year-olds to accidentally have one for free? It's true. You know, and so some of these things are a little attractive to me, but probably for the wrong reasons. And so it kind of makes me gut check. And I think that's exactly what this movie is trying to do. Make you gut check a little bit. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't find a whole lot in this movie attractive, just a, a certain things. But yeah, I mean, now that you mention it, it's probably for the, the wrong, wrong reasons. Although mm-hmm. I'm still not going to check myself. So. Yeah. And of course, we see a lot of our own American nationalism and patriotism and or blind patriotism and things like that. But throughout the movie, we get all these uh, propaganda films outside of the story. Those are just things that were inside the story. Right. And so throughout the movie, we get a lot of different things in the propaganda films. We get child soldiers, which is a huge no, no. Right. That's a a fucking war crime and a humanitarian crisis. It's true. Uh, We get handing kids guns. Fully automatic burrito. To hold it, and they're fighting over it and handing out bullets. <laughs> I love that part, though. I love all of these moments. Actually, they're like some of my favorite parts in the movie. Oh yeah. yeah, and then we get like glorifying weapons and genocide. We get a trial by tribunal, and you'll notice there's no jury. With public execution for entertainment. That is like the, I mean, I laugh so hard. I was, I had to pause the movie last night because I was laughing so hard at how against our constitution that was when they said it. They're like, arrested this morning, tried this afternoon, executed tonight. And I was just like, oh my God. Yeah. That's fucking terrifying. A murderer was captured this morning and tried today. Guilty. Sentence, death. Execution tonight at six, all net, all channels. Would you like to know more? <laughs> at six? Yeah, like this, the tone shifted, and that's super intentional. He was like, they found a murderer, and he was tried. Execution tonight. <laughs> and these are clearly the moments like we were just talking about that are kind of like in your face with, with the satire and, and what they're trying to do, and the things that we noticed probably most when we were younger, right? Yeah. I think it takes a little bit of life and a little bit of like recognizing like what your country stands for, what you believe in and what you would fight for on your own Mm -hmm. to get a lot of this stuff like fully as an adult. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I think this movie is certainly more for adults on multiple levels. Yes. (laughs) Speaking of which, they are also glorifying scientific research where the ends justify the means. And they show like they give a cow to one of the bugs that they've captured, but they censor it. And immediately after they go to a segment about, the uh, radical Mormons going against the, the federal recommendation and colonizing a planet and then not censoring any of the horrific gore and their mangled bodies. Yep. They censor the cow. They don't censor that. That tells you something else as well. I felt really seen in that moment, too, <laughs> as kind of a Mormon. Right. I was just like, well, of course, the Mormons are going to like colonize something. and They're having the Fort St. Joseph or whatever it is. Yeah. Right. And I mean, do you did you think I'm just like curious that the bodies looked super fake in some of these moments, right? Like less so on this watch. Right? Maybe it was the version I was watching. Well, we watched the same version, but yeah, I didn't. So I think some of them look a little hokey, but the close-ups all look pretty real to me now, having seen actual dead bodies. And I'm wondering if people think that they look more fake than they do. 
Well, and I was I was thinking I certainly did as a kid that no. maybe they intentionally made them look fake because maybe some of these propaganda films are sort of set up. It you could be I mean? that could be too. Uh, that one looked more fake than anything. Yeah, the others when they actually come to the base, those all look pretty good. Yes, no, I was like, mostly in these propaganda moments, right? Like, talk about how films. good the corpses look. <laughs> I, oh my God, I know. Well, we can go in. Oh my any God, we're part here. of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's just to me, like in that moment, I was like, it feels like somebody set this up to film and show people which is what propaganda is anyway right yeah because it, it, it's a radical difference between some of those like mormon corpses is into what we see later on which is supposed to be like real life right yeah well it's just like sh- sh- schadenfreude or whatever it's called right yeah. it's meant for entertainment they're showing they're not showing the cow to upset people but they want to show the people that went against the body politic mm-hmm. and show all their mangled corpses as a form of entertainment which is crazy right my favorite piece of all the propaganda is the kids doing their part by killing all the bugs on the street with the manic mom clapping excitedly in the background all muppety (laughs) just killing all those roaches (laughs) doing their part there just happens to be like this big pile of roaches in the middle of the street and all the kids are going (laughs) where where did they come from and i mean although i mean as kids we're even taught to kill bugs which is bad well sure still but I mean, that's that's different. We're not killing fascist bugs. I wonder if my mom would clap like that if she saw me killing a mountain of bugs. But you know, it's it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that because I'm wondering, do you think the ast- they let the asteroid through? Like one of the very first things we see in this movie is their capabilities to detect and shoot down those asteroids, right? And I I can't help but feel like fascism and nationalism thrive on those like Pearl Harbor or September 11th type of moments. Oh yeah, and and do we think? They let that ass straight through on purpose. I mean, I'm going to say yes, maybe in some sort of like higher it power could, of government. I think that's an easy question and we don't know. But it's like the, the fact that it comes up as a question that it could be 50 50. Yeah. Right. I don't I mean, but still it damages the ship or whatever. And I mean, would they let that happen? But I, yeah, I mean, you get the feeling from all this propaganda that they're trying to say, like, the bugs want us dead because they hate our freedom, you know, or because we keep colonizing their planets, tomato, tomato. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously it's alluded this is a war that humans started. And I agree. Like, it, it, it is. And made worse by continuing to colonize those planets. Mormons in general, apparently. Yeah. And but... then take the bugs and <laughs> experiment on them. And... But yeah, I mean, obviously don't talk about that a lot in this movie because he's trying to create something that is like fully fascist, right. Or look fascist. So they're not going to talk about like how, how we're encroaching on their environment. No. Although I think they do at some point, like they have a crosstalk. They do. It's like a Fox news like segment, like crossfire, except crossfire I think was on CNN, but it's kind of like Fox news, right. And where every channel in this universe is Fox news. (laughs) (laughs) And one of them was like, we should maybe live and let live, but they're immediately shut down with that fascist mumbo jumbo of, kill them all when a colony reaches a certain size 300 generations or something it gets smarter insects yeah, with me- intelligence have you ever met one i can't believe i am hearing this nonsense you just this wait is the most a moment conversation May- i have ever had. there is some kind of bug that we haven't seen yet a leadership cast a, a hive brain brain bugs frankly i find the idea of a bug that thinks offensive like i find it offensive that bugs have a brain or whatever <laughs> like that and that's another problem with fascism is that their, their superiority complex makes them overconfident mm-hmm. and i think they purposely went to war to make fascism work and continue to work to have an enemy but they still bit off more than they could chew by completely underestimating 
that the bugs could have any kind of intelligence. And that's when we get that um, Clindathu massacre, 100,000 military killed in one hour. Although, and, and that would be true because we've seen fascist countries go to war for these very same reasons. Oh, right? sure. So, or non-fascist countries, countries that are, you know, slouching towards the Bethlehem of fascism. <laughs> countries that are quote-unquote democratic. Right? <laughs> and then they start changing their language a little bit. Instead of like they're going to war and things like that, after Clindathu, they talk, start talking about Planet P. They start talking about cleansing the system one planet at a time. They start talking about cleaning, clean, cleansing, all those words, genocide. Right. And then there's even more like we mentioned in the synopsis that it was your joke because we write each other's synopsises that we have to read. <laughs> but even the ultimate bug, the big bad, the brain bug resembles a fucking vagina. And if there's one thing fascists secretly fear, it's a vagina that can think for itself. <laughs> oh, my God. That's accurate, though. I mean, it looks like a vagina, but it has something that like phallic that comes out of it. Phallic yeah. comes out of it. Yeah. Teeth. <laughs> vagina dentata <laughs> it does i mean like i was noticing that in this this watch i was sitting there staring at it and i had forgotten that particular part of that bug right well, reminds me of alien and our talk about that with male rape and all that stuff that's right mm-hmm. i mean with it thinking out of its mouth but yeah so i i i somehow thought this bug just would communicate telepathically until they were like it sucked his brain out from that (laughs) other place and then when it slowly comes out and goes into patrick muldoon and like sucks his brain out which is like wow that's and his final word is like someday someone like me is gonna fucking kill you and and all of your kind or whatever it had enough it sucked his whole brain out that long brain out loop out i love that line (laughs) sucked his brain michael ironside's playing that line as serious as a car accident (laughs) sucked his brain out (laughs) there's a lot there's a lot going on in this movie and i feel like the more that i watch it in the future i will glean even more from it like i I have to also i feel like the more i watch it the more i'm going to sort of like compare it to the, the the world that I live in today. And I think that's an important aspect of this movie, just like other Verhoeven movies like RoboCop, mm-hmm. right? You need to think about the, the places that you live in and what's completely at stake, like every single time. So should we talk about the look and feel of this movie a little bit? Yes. So this is Phil Tippett again. So if you think about what's happened between RoboCop and Starship Troopers, as far as effects, and that is Jurassic Park. Right where Phil Tippett had to go from go motion and basically almost get fired, but evolve into uh, creating his own way to, you know, use the the new CG technology, but give his physical puppeteers, the puppeteers that are so used to stop motion or actual models and puppets a way with physically with their hands to control the 3d models as if they were puppeteers. Right. Which is not really done today. We're using, you know, frame by frame manual animation in addition to a lot of the capture suits where they automatically capture movements from an actor's face or their body, mm-hmm. like Avatar or something. Right. So this is some of the most, you know, this is a really interesting time to me in movies this is before like a huge revolution of, of CGI after it was completely cemented. This is even before like the new Star Wars prequels had come out mm-hmm. with Jar Jar fucking Binks or even Gollum from Lord of the Rings. You know, so it wasn't ready for that. But they learned, Phil Tippett learned what he did on Jurassic Park, and he marshaled a team of 100 animators, model makers, computer artists, and technicians, and expanded his all-CGI facility to do this. And because of the intensity of his involvement and his ability to pre-visualize the hordes 
of teaming arachnids. Verhoeven had credited Tippett with co-directing the large-scale battle sequences for the film. The excellence of this work resulted in Tippett's sixth nomination in 1997 for an Academy Award. You know, I'm not sure that I realized who this man is at all. Like, I'm not sure that I've heard his name many times. I probably have in the past, Mm -hmm. but I feel like I'm hearing it all over the place now. And maybe because we just saw Mad God and it's like fresh on my brain, but I feel like every movie that we've talked about lately, Phil Tippett's been involved in. And so he's got to be just like, certainly his blockbusters. And yeah, I mean, like I just didn't realize that like he had his hand on like all these different things. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of artistry and expertise that went into the motion and animation of these bugs to make them look super naturalistic. Mm -hmm. These bugs hold up today. Those, those mass scenes have not aged like they look photoreal today they do it's amazing in the larger bugs too i mean like all of it looks incredibly real yeah and just just so so good i mean they hold up 25 years later this movie's uh 25 year anniversary which we didn't even know is in november and i forget all the time that this movie was released so early when i think about starship troopers i think about it being released in like the 2000s, this right? Pre Matrix. And is yeah. Pre Lord of the Rings, pre Harry Potter, pre Star Wars prequels. <laughs> I just totally forget that it came out, you know, when I was still in high school. Yeah. So this is also like a great time because I feel like this is a, it's a great use of everything that it, the kind of culmination of model making, of animatronic puppets, and like early amazing use of CGI based on the expertise of all the people that were making this happen physically in camera Mm -hmm. before this time, before the last five years. Right. And so I, a lot of the CGI, like if you think about like the T-Rex scene in Jurassic park, that still looks so good. It's because part of his animatronic puppet and the other CG of it is a single source, like a light. And then there's rain. Yeah. And so that really sells things that aren't humanoid form especially something as abstract as these bugs. And so part of that is like what they're doing and knowing how they can do it. And then a moving camera, like cinema verite style, a lot of it also helps. Uh, For the scenes with hundreds or thousands of bugs, it could take up to 32 hours per frame to render back then with, with the computers that they had to use. Jesus Christ. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And in fact, the scene where the camera kind of goes over the wall on planet P Uh where they're trying to secure that compound and all of the bugs come out. It's like this, Oh shit moment still to this day. And they had a problem with the camera. Like they had a camera rig that was there and then it started waving in the wind a little bit and they had to match every one of those bugs with every little wave of that camera. It wasn't just a simple pan or a zoom or moving the camera. It was like an organic like wind hitting the camera and vibrating it a little bit. And so they had never matched a moving camera like that to CG, especially certainly with like models like that, uh, the mass, you know, swarm of those things. And so it still just remains one of the best mass CG scenes I've seen to this day. I mean, it is terrifying, too. I mean, like, that is, like, the, the scariest, most tense moment in this movie. Maybe after that first initial battle where people are, like, literally getting ripped apart, you know? Well, yeah, and then up on the planet. Well, you know, I guess after this is happening, because that's all planet P or whatever. But then the very next time, like, you see the ships kind of getting destroyed the first planet. They're on Klandathu. Right. Where someone made a big goddamn mistake with the with the plasma and hitting all the ships. When they go and the, the Roger Young is destroyed, which is the ship that Carmen is on. Uh, and Xander, whatever his name is, 40-year-old. <laughs> Patrick Muldoon. <laughs> Patrick Muldoon. Um, 
And, and the ship essentially splits apart and it's a model and you can see every single individual little deck and you can see people flying out and there's different colors of fire on each deck and different things. And like, I don't, I don't even know like if CG, you know, how long that would have t- taken or if that would even be possible today. Like it looks so fucking good and visceral. It does. Both what's happening down on the planet and what's happening above it. I love that moment where the ship is sort of split in half and you see the decks yeah. on fire individually because the fires look a little bit different on each deck, yeah. right? It looks really, really neat. I also feel like this- They're movie, hitting bodies as they like go up. I was just about to say, I mean, like a lot of the look and feel of this movie too is like some practical like gore effects, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. That look just great in this movie and like moments like when that guy's head gets shut off during that let live fire drill right oh it's shocking and yeah. gross and then the, the the bugs flying and decapitating people yes. and all kinds of shit it's just so fucking neat to look at that the compositing of all the the legs of those bugs hitting going through people's chests and legs and arms looks so fucking real today i love it i just Love it. Everything about it is so good. I also love that this movie, like we said earlier, does try to like sort of recreate or at least pay homage to like the look and feel of 1950s science fiction. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel it's super intentional. Right. This movie flows like a 1950s sci-fi movie. And, you know, you feel kind of like Gideon moments like watching it and comparing it to those also a lot of 1950s and 60s sci-fi movies have this kind of feel of nationalism about them you know Mm -hmm. like that we can look back on now in retrospect and sort of see but at the time maybe not so many comparisons to things like that and I I think that's really neat oh yeah all the propaganda pieces are reminiscent of like the 30s and 40s and then the action set pieces and things like that that's all reminiscent of the 50s and all that was super intentional. I'm glad you mentioned it. I love it. It just makes me makes me so happy as, as just a, a film lover, right? Well, speaking of absolutely loving, I have always loved this, this soundtrack. The film score for this, like Basil Potadora's RoboCop, like I listened to that solo like last week and I even sent you like the end credits track because it had all of the different themes. And it's so much better than I remembered because I'd never really listened to it, I think, other than the main theme. Um, but the whole soundtrack is amazing for Robocop. And this just blows even that out of the water. It's one of my, probably my, one of my top five, if not top three soundtracks for film scores ever made. Wow. It's it, no, like it's so good in isolation, like, and listening to it, watching this movie is amazing. My favorite track is um, the destruction of the Roger Young, actually. And then there's little bits and pieces of the propaganda music and um, there's bits of like the wonder where like uh, Carmen is doing her test flight and you see the ring around the moon and all that stuff. There's so many different themes and moments of like joy and wonder and, and horror and action and propaganda. Like this, this score has everything and it's one of my favorite things to listen to as far as film scores go. I need to listen to it you know, just sort of isolated away from the movie. I I notice a lot of it while watching the film, but I, I feel like I would appreciate it more if I would just sit down and listen to it. And the, the way he's composed the score has this amazing texture 
of a lot more like woodwind and whistle tones than you would than you would expect flutes mm-hmm. it's just really really interesting and complex score weirdly complex than you would probably remember just from watching the movie I feel like we need to have another top 10 and do some more film scores I might have mentioned Starship Troopers on there I don't know if we were getting that horror adjacent yet no but I think now we're a little bit more comfortable being more horror adjacent so we'd have a lot of sci-fi in there maybe yeah I don't know we'll see I, I'd have to go back and check might have been an honorable mention. Not sure. So I think we've talked a lot about the themes and uh, you know how well technically this movie was made, but we can't get by without mentioning how fucking stacked this cast is. For real, I feel like every time I turned around, I was like, oh my god, there's somebody else who was like just about to explode in popularity after this movie was released. I don't know, Casper Van Dien, he's still best known, I think, for Starship Troopers. Yeah, I mean, he was also in... Sleepy Hollow. Sleepy Hollow. He was in like a Tarzan franchise movie. Yeah. Um, He did a lot of TV work, a lot of direct-to-video work after this. But yeah, I would feel like Starship Troopers is probably his biggest. This is also his favorite movie. And also, speaking of which, this is Verhoeven's favorite movie. Oh. At least of as of an interview in like 2017. Of his oeuvre. Of his own, yes. Okay, yeah. I mean, I can see that. Uh, Dina Meyer ended up uh, on lots of different things, although she ended up uh, in the Saw franchise. Yes. That's the first thing I can think of. I love Dina Meyer in this movie. I think that she's great. I think she is like super, super attractive yeah, as well. Of, and she has a lot of character. Yes. She has an aura about her. And like, I'm, it's, it's kind of weird thinking about how she didn't just blow up. Yeah. In Hollywood. I was thinking about that last night because I was comparing her to Denise Richards, right? Who we've talked about on this show many times. And I was just like, God, I mean, like, given my druthers between the two, I mean, if I were ultimately straight, I would be like, Dina Meyer all the way. Like, clearly she likes him a lot more than Denise Richards does. And she's just a better person and better looking. I've always had that problem with this movie. I'm just like, forget Carmen. I was like, what are you doing? I was like, you're going after the wrong one. Like, clearly. What is this, like, teacher slash, like, leader is like... um, Never give up a good thing. Never give up a good thing. I mean, the entire movie, I'm like, what are you doing? Like, stop it. And finally, he got some, you know, some sense talked into him by that character, which is good. And they had that wigwam sex. (laughs) They do. I, I think, like, one of the movies one of the parts of this movie that I find kind of eye rolling, but also really fun and melodramatic at the same time is her death scene. Right. I'm sad when she dies. I'm sad when she dies, but it's so goofy because she's like, I'm dying. And he's like, no, you're going to be okay. And then it's just like, I feel like he, it should end with him like wailing into the ether or whatever. I was just like, it's so melodramatic to me. She says something else too. And I'm just, she says, don't let me go. Yeah. It's still, it's melodramatic. Don't let go Jack. I thought that was melodramatic too. <laughs> Maybe I just have a problem. With I'm the king of the world, Jack. <laughs> dying in their arms. Um, I'll never let go. Yeah. Oh no, because she was like, "But well, at least I got to have you," or something Aww. like that. Um, Come on. Maybe I'm just way too cynical. <laughs> I'm probably viewing it through a nostalgia lens too. That makes me view everything a little bit more okay. seriously too. But I dig that scene. I'm always sad when she dies. I wanted Carmen to die. I mean, I'm sad when she dies because I like the character. I just wish that it wasn't so yeah. soap opera-y. Yeah, well. And I normally like that shit. So then we've got the hot scene, hot scene, Denise Richards. 
Who I, I keep we keep covering, right? She was in Wild Things and then Drop Dead Gorgeous and, mm-hmm. and this and this. I feel like we're gonna just work through all her body of work at some point. Well someone's got to. I mean <laughs> we're just gonna have to change our it's a side podcast. A Denise Richards podcast. I thought she was gonna blow up too after the nineties and she never really did, which sucks. I feel like she's way famous i mean if we're talking about like casper van deen and dina meyer i think denise richards was way more famous than they ever were for a bit yeah i don't i mean i still think that people know her though i mean i think if we walked out in the street and said denise richards they'd be like sure and if we said casper van deen they'd be like come what (laughs) yeah denise sure but also partly because she married charlie sheen and that whole debacle that's true you know and then she was on reality tv but of, of the core group of friends, of the four kind of friends from high school, obviously the household name, the biggest star, is one of our most important gays. Mm-hmm. And that is Neil Patrick Harris. That's right. That's Carl Jenkins. Is one of our most important gays. And I remember being shocked to see him because I remembered him from Doogie Hauser. <laughs> I feel like he had gone away for a very long time before this movie came out. Well, he was a kid. You know, yeah. I think he was still like the youngest of all of them even. He looked young in this he, movie. He did. And wow. Like, he did good. He did a really good job. He's swimming in those Nazi costumes. Oh, my He's God. so, like, frail looking. <laughs> yeah. You know? He's such a twink in this movie. But fucking Neil Patrick Harris. Yes. Which is so random. I mean. Loved it. But good. I like him in this movie. And fucking Jake Busey. Aw. Yeah. Jake Busey. I haven't met him, but I've met his father. Jesus. He Gary. survived. <laughs> barely. I barely survived. I was Jake just trying to do Busey. my job. He looks like a beaver. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> uh, I, I enjoyed him in Identity, I think in 2003 or four. I have not seen that. I've seen the movie one time. I saw it in the theater. Uh, I, I liked DVD. it. I need yeah. to watch it again. Yeah. And then the wonderful Clancy Brown. Always wonderful. Just so good. I, I remember, like, it's funny because he was the main bad guy in Highlander. Unrecognizable, by the way. And then in Highlander 2. It is Michael Ironside that is the main bad guy. So we've got two of those actors, the Starship Troopers, that played bad guys in Highlander series. Oh my God, it's a link between them. <laughs> it's a link. <laughs> but I love Clancy Brown. He's been in a shit ton. He's funny in this movie, too. Yes. Yeah, I like it. I like him a lot. Uh, let's see. Who else? We, we had Patrick Muldoon. Who cares? Uh, pa- Michael mean... Michael Ironside, who was almost in RoboCop. He almost played <laughs> Bitches Leave character. <laughs> Boddicker. Yeah. Yeah, I like Michael Ironside a lot. I was like, I like Scanners a lot. So, I mean, I always think of him in that particular movie. Yeah. Um, Patrick Muldoon is on Melrose Place, which is why I threw that joke in the synopsis. Yeah, right? and he was trying yeah. to cast this movie like it was 90210 in space. And he succeeded. He did. You know? <laughs> but yeah, every time I see him in this movie, I just think about his character from Melrose Place. Yeah. Uh, Seth Gilliam, who plays Watkins from the Roughnecks, is now on or was on The Walking Dead. Okay. Right? So he's he's had a career after this movie as well. Yeah. I just, I, every time I see this movie, I forget that Rue fucking McClanahan is the biology teacher. She's so good in this small, small role too. She's on screen for like just a couple minutes. And like, she seems like such a good sport. You know what I mean? Like they have her in makeup. They have her in weird costume. She's doing weird things. You know, it seems like such an unru McClanahan thing to do, but here she is. Who's that? Is it Julianne Moore? I always thought it was her and old age makeup. <laughs> <laughs> well, by this time in Rue McClanahan's life, they might not have had to age her too much, but they certainly made her look a little weird. Yeah. 
But yeah, no, because I, I remember when you and I watched this a, a year or so ago, and I was just like, Rue McClanahan? I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, we've got some of the other people that I don't really recognize their names. Although, Dean Norris was in Breaking Bad, and he plays one of the commanding officers on the base. I still haven't seen Breaking Bad. Oh. I know. Anyway, I've got some fun facts. All right, Lamb on me. I'm sure mm-hmm. there's going to be some great ones in here. So James Marsden, Keanu Reeves, Mark Wahlberg, Josh Brolin, and Jason Priestley oh. were considered for the role of Johnny Rico. And Nev Campbell and Rebecca Gayhart were considered for the part of Carmen. But both were busy doing Scream 2. That entire list is just like 90s vomiting actors. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Jason Priestley? Like, really? Yeah. Although, I mean, I can kind of see it. What makes me most excited out of that list probably is Mark Wahlberg. I think I'd like to have seen that. I think even Matt Damon went for this. But that he wanted someone really Nazi looking. So, <laughs> and pretty. He, yeah, if they weren't pretty enough, they didn't care as much about their acting, I don't think. Is that what Rotten Tomatoes calls it wooden? Maybe. There is some wooden acting in this. There is. I mean, yeah, it's it's they're not wrong. Yeah. So the singer at the graduation party is actually Basil Apollodorus' eldest daughter, Zoe. I was going to like so when I was watching this last night, I was like, I had to make a mental note to Google who this group is, because I thought maybe he had chosen some random like nineties girl group to do it. It's on the soundtrack. That's neat. Okay. If you can find the soundtrack. Was it's, it not, it's not on Spotify and it's not on uh, like YouTube music anymore Huh? for whatever licensing thing, but you can find it on YouTube, but right. you can you find know, who knows YouTube. for how long. Yeah. So director Paul Verhoeven and stars Dina Meyer and Casper Van Dien confirmed that Verhoeven and cinematographer Yost Vacano, yet again from mm-hmm. Rivercut, shot the co-ed shower scene in the nude themselves on a dare from Dina. So uh, on the day of the shoot, Verhoeven had asked to, the cast to do a little fashion show without fashion <laughs> so they could get comfortable being naked. And when the cast was reluctant to disrobe, Verhoeven asked them what the big deal was, to which Dina responded, Paul, if it's no big deal, why don't you do it? So quite unexpectedly, Verhoeven got undressed, as well as Vacano, who had been raised in a nudity camp. Mm. <laughs> After an initial shock, and Casper Van Dien reportedly yelled, Oh God, Dina, why? <laughs> <laughs> and a good laugh from the cast, the scene was filmed without problems. So literally, this is being shot and directed by naked... Uh, naked Paul Verhoeven? <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, a naked, a naked cinematographer. They do seem strangely at ease yeah. in that particular moment, you know, and maybe that's why, I mean, it's similar to the RoboCop locker room scene, but this is like to the nth degree. Like they really are just like talking, hanging out, coming and going and just like being, being naked with each other. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, Ver- Verhoeven found it strange. He said, Americans get more upset about nudity than ultra violence. I'm constantly amazed about that. I mean, I haven't seen any sex scenes in American film that are anything other than completely boring. A bare breast is more difficult to get through censors than a body riddled with bullets. And that is true today yeah. as well. Well, if you go to Europe today, even like a hotel in Germany that might have like a, a wet area sauna or mm-hmm. something, it's co-ed. Yeah. You know, and so that's... That's kind of a European thing anyway. I always joke with my mom because when I was younger, she used to make me cover my eyes, right? When there were naked people on TV or movies, but not when it was really violent. And I was just like, you made me love horror movies and you made me a homosexual by making me not look at breasts. (laughs) My mom was kind of the opposite. She was, she was uh, with violence was hesitant. And then with the body, generally it would be not in all ways, but Mm -hmm. generally the attitude was it's natural. Yeah. Right. 
which is, I think, a lot more healthy. You know, sex is natural. Violence is not. As I mean, I completely agree with you. Like, I wouldn't if I had kids, I wouldn't make them close their eyes. And that's how things are rated in in Europe, actually. Right. So the more violent things are rated. But if there's sex or nudity, you generally it's okay for general audiences. Not in America. Make it as violent as possible and slap a G rating on it. Yeah, it's so weird. So during filming, Jake Busey, who played Ace, suffered heat stroke while working all day in the 120 degree desert sun. And this stopped production for a week. When he recovered, several large holes were cut into his uniform so that he could cool off. Many other cast members' suits had this modification as well in order to prevent further cases of uh, which, on average, there were 25 people per day being treated for heat stroke during that filming. I don't doubt it. This was filmed in like the American desert, right? Wyoming, yeah. I believe. So, I mean, it gets hot. And those costumes look like Full on. Those felt. helmets look like just little ovens. Yes. Good Lord. Yeah. I'm like, no, there's no way in the world I would join that military. No. So most of the arachnids appearing on film are CGI, but a few are life-sized robotic models uh, that were built. However, during the battle scenes, the actors wound up looking at director Paul Verhoeven himself, who would stand in front of them and jump and scream up and down at them, or even chasing them with a broom <laughs> to elicit their reactions, attempting to generate some sort of fearsomeness of a 12-foot space ant. Clancy Brown affectionately described the director as a nutbag, <laughs> given to jumping up and down with a bullhorn going, I'm a big fucking bug, I'll kill you! <laughs> I loved him. He was so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) Now I know why Elizabeth Berkley is jumping up and down so much in fucking showgirls, because clearly that's how this man directs his actors. For real. (laughs) It's like, jump up and down, jump up and down, shake your breasts, you're dancing. I just see him up and dancing with with his head up in the sky and his arms. No, twirl around the pole like this, I'll show you. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll get naked, too. And I'll get naked. I'll ask my nipples if you do. I'll lick that pole. <laughs> Don't lick that pole. Don't girl. lick that pole, Paul. Don't lick that hole. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for my last one, Neil Patrick Harris was often called Doogie Himmler on set whenever he wore the military <laughs> intelligence uniform. <laughs> He's swimming in it. <laughs> Doogie Himmler. <laughs> I mean, he's all serious in these scenes, and then it looks like they found a coat like three sizes too big. <laughs> For real. <laughs> okay, those were really fun, and I feel like I know Paul Verhoeven a little bit better. But uh, we have some questions that we need to ask about Starship Troopers, like we do about all the movies that we cover here on the Film Flamers. And we're going to start with, Chris, are you a civilian or a citizen? I'm a civilian. I'm a civilian, too. Yeah. I mean... If everyone's joining the military and voting en masse, they're probably going to make decisions that I don't want to make. I'm going to lose anyway. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. But seriously, though, is Starship Troopers a horror movie? Yes. Clearly. It's also many other things. Yeah. I mean, it's lots and lots of things. But this is a horror movie. Yeah. I feel like, in a way, more than the other movies of Verhoeven's that we've talked about over the last two months, right? Like, clearly, this movie is about giant bug aliens that are ripping people apart there's lots of gore in this movie oh, yeah. right i mean and, and the effects are super gnarly and i mean it's just clearly a horror film it's a monster movie yeah a 1950s monster movie yeah were you scared while watching starship troopers i'm sure i was the first time around and certainly there's tense moments yeah i mean there there are when they finally get to the planet right and and like all the bugs are coming and killing people like it is a super tense moment there were some moments when i was watching this 
for this particular rewatch. And I would find myself like sort of not paying attention maybe, but like the minute that people are getting ripped apart, right? Like I'm sort of glued to the screen and on the edge of my seat. Or even backing up from the screen a little bit when they start swarming, you mm-hmm. know, or when the, the ships are trying to like slowly fucking dodge those <laughs> massive plasma bursts or whatever coming up from the surface of the planet. And you're kind of like moving in your seat to try to like dodge you know but they're all getting ripped apart both on the surface of the planet and above it and there's a lot of tense moments and there's nothing more horrifying than thinking who in the hell would let denise richards like fly any of these fucking spaceships i mean like come on yeah there's a lot of like gut-wrenching kind of moments where you're just like ooh, you know like can you kind of tense up a little bit certainly when the captain gets like hitting her stomach with that door, you know, yeah. and trying to escape. And I think a million most, other moments in this movie, the most shocking to me. And I think the one that I jump at traditionally is when that guy gets shot during that, like, yeah, that one's a big jump. And then also the, um, when the, the phallic thing comes out of the big brain bug, and just like hits into the top of his head. Cause you're not sure mm-hmm. what it's going to do. And then it sucks out and hollows his cheeks and his eyes roll up and it's like a really Muppety kind of effect. But Some Muppety Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> but he was Muppety anyway, so it kind of works. A little bit. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, definitely lots of these moments. So out of five stars, what would you rate Starship Troopers? I give it five fucking stars. There's some wooden acting and stuff. Like I keep thinking like maybe this is a 4.5 because there's some things, you know, you know, that, that are not perfect, but it's all done so intentionally and it works for the film as yes. a whole. Like it only does it to serve the story that they're telling and the satire and the over the topness of it. And uh, with all its moving parts, it is greater than the sum of its parts. And I think it is for what it is. It is perfect. If you had asked 18 year old me, right. You know, when this movie was you know released in the theater and eventually on, on yeah. video. No, the first time I saw it, I would just like, no, this movie is just okay. I would say like maybe three and a half to four, maybe closer to three and a half. Sure. But like on the the last couple of times that I watched it like a year ago and, and now this is a five star movie, like fully. I think this movie is just fucking perfect. It's fun to watch. It's got something to say. It's not boring. You know what I mean? It, it's got everything that I want in a fucking monster movie. And I have a good time watching it and thinking about it. I love these science, you know, science fiction, action, horror films that have a message. Mm hmm. You know, Aliens, Robocop, Starship Troopers, like those are all like great, you know, movies about the expendability of humans in the face of, you know, corporate greed or nationalism or fascism and things like that. They're perfect. It is. And I mean, look, for me, like watching something that's like this, this sci-fi ish, right? I mean, like it's kind of unheard of for me to give it such a high rating. Although this movie, I think transcends a lot of genre, which we already talked about, but finally, and some would say most importantly, and maybe difficult in this particular movie, who's the hottest guy in starship troopers. You know, you could like throw a rock in some random direction, blindfolded in this movie and hit a hot guy. It's one of yes. those few movies where that's the case <laughs> versus the last movie. And, uh, you know, I have to say the one that I've, I've just felt the most dreamy is uh, Matt Levin. He is like the, the one that was going for journalism uh-huh. after he was in the service. And he's just like the brightest fucking blue eyes. And he's super cute. I agree. I mean, I think, I think he's really, really, really hot. Uh, but like like you said, like there's so many in this. I feel like Seth Gilliam, who plays Watkins, is yeah. really attractive. Sugar? Yeah. Mm. 
And, uh, and I don't know if this is a typo, but Matt Levin's character says Kitten Smith. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's supposed to be so. Kevin. I don't know. Kitten. <laughs> Kevin Smith. <laughs> Not Kevin Smith. <laughs> We're going to go with Kitten. <laughs> Ultimately, though, I feel like Casper Van Dien is super fucking hot. I just can't help myself. When I was a teenager, I thought that he was like the dreamiest thing in, in like the history of dreamy men, you know sure. what I mean? Hunky he looks boy. like a Ken doll to me. He looks so plastic compared. He to does. Like, it doesn't look real. No, he's he's so beyond like over attractive to me that I that it just loops back to like non-entity. I don't know. I just can't help it, and I feel like you know in that scene where he's being punished. And they have to like strap him up and he looks like super buff. And that guy walks up and he's like, put this in your mouth. And I'm just like, my God, Casper Van Dien's hot. Put this in your mouth. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Starship Troopers. As always, we'd like to know what you think about this movie and our conversation. You can find us on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Would you like to know more about my Flip 63 haul? Mmm, take a stroll up my washout alley. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to know more about a sexy bidet? <laughs> no, no, you're ho. <laughs> Did you mean foe? Same. <laughs> so like we said, that's the end of our Verhoeven summer on the main feed, but head over to patreon.com slash the film flamers and check out our bonus episode on his first English language film, Flesh and Blood. That's right, and don't miss next month when we loop back around to the Alien franchise and finally finish it with Prometheus and Alien Covenant, which we did cover to try and end it last year on <laughs> Patreon, but we decided, holy shit, these are better upon uh, retrospection than we thought. So we're going to give those a maybe a shallow dive, but we'll see what happens. I think it may turn out to be a deep dive. We're going to find out, though. But we're A derp dive, if you will. A derp dive. <laughs> we're going to conclude some blockbustery summer stuff with those two alien entries. That's right. We might even do some AVPing over on uh, Patreon. I think we must. And as always, we like reviews, guys. So if you like our show, please head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Tell us why you like us, and we're going to read that on Shooting the Flame. That's right. We're working on our eligibility for Rotten Tomatoes scoring. So if you can help us out there, we need a certain number of reviews. And if you help us get there, we'll be super appreciative. That's right. Well, Chris, I think it's time for us to go off and uh, squash some people. <laughs> that too. It's time for us to go off and stroll up a washout alley. <laughs> I can't say that anymore. <laughs> so let's go have some sweet dreams. The only good bug is a dead bug. (laughs) (laughs) So saith the Lord.